Listener Production. Hello and welcome to How Fitness Saved My Life. I'm Action Alexa. I'm a former college American football player and wrestler turned half Ironman competitor who grew up, well, sort of, to be a strength coach and mental health advocate. And I'm Jenna Louise, an ex-competitive gymnast and BMX racer, now a multidisciplined, high-performance athlete and coach. Over the course of our careers within the fitness industry, we've seen firsthand the impact that physical strength and mental toughness can have in changing the course of people's lives. In our podcast, we invite people to share the stories and practical skills of how they built their physical, mental and emotional fitness and how that saved them at the hardest time of their life. What an intro. Now I feel we have to live up to it. God, that's awkward. (laughs) Why should people listen to us, Alexa? That's a really good question. (laughs) I think we've both been through a lot and we have very different stories, but there are definitely similarities in that fitness has played a huge part of our life, especially when it comes to strength training. And I think being able to give people a tool in which not only to level up their life, but also to give them focus and structure and support when they need it the most You know, we get to be around extraordinary people and whenever you are talking to extraordinary people, you want to be extraordinary yourself and you want to do extraordinary things. And that's what I think life is all about. So, my gosh, drop the mic. I absolutely love that. Absolutely love it. You know, we've both been blessed to network with some incredible people and learn from incredible people as well. So I guess the question I have for you is where did it all start for you? Where did you inject yourself into the fitness industry and why? My journey, if you'd asked me as a kid what I was going to do when I grew up, I don't know that I would have said I would work in the fitness industry. Like I grew up in a military environment. So my, both my parents were British military. So my dad was a major in the British army. My mum was a medic specializing in gunshot wounds. Mm. So I went to military school in England, Ireland, Germany until I was 10. And I traveled around a lot. And my dad played soccer and cricket semi-professionally for the army. So he taught me. So he threw me straight into cricket were in the days of like three-step bowling and I remember getting my first black eye from like catching like being a fielder and it just like missing the ball and it going straight into my eye socket ow you know but then I didn't really get a true sense of what fitness would mean to me until I turned 15 and when we left the UK so my dad finished up with the military and we moved to New Zealand and I started going to school in New Zealand and I was bullied at school so my nickname at school was Alexa and Arexa. And like, God, if only those haters could see me now because, dear God, you would never think that I didn't have <laughs> yes. a flex on me. Um, but yeah, my nickname was Alexa and Arexa, and I was really self-conscious about it. Like, to my ball, I wore a ball dress with a white shirt underneath because I was so scared of what people would say about my bony chest. Yeah, right. And I went to the gym because I wanted to put on muscle. I didn't want to be the little girl that got bullied at school anymore. And that is how I got into the gym. Yeah, You know, the gym for me became this sanctuary. It became this place of empowerment. It became a place where I would go to feel like I had control over my life. And I had this incredibly positive, inspiring and empowering first visit to the gym. And I'm so lucky I did because it really set me up for what fitness really meant to me. And having that positive experience, like having that gift of empowerment and finding that the stronger I got physically, the more mental toughness I developed and the more ability I had to cope with what was going on in my everyday life, Mm. like that gift of empowerment, that's something that I want to pay forward. So 
that's kind of why I do what I do now, to be able to give that experience to other people. Yeah. So fitness sort of gave you that inner belief that you could do the things that you wanted to do, achieve for yourself and then pass it on to other people. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think it was almost sort of a little bit the same as you. Like, Yeah, 100%. Like I definitely got bullied in school. That's for sure. I grew up really not being like many other people in school. I, I did definitely didn't feel like I fit in with the girls. That's for sure. I mean, I did do a girly sport. Let's start with what that. Was your you first know, sport? I was a um, ex-competitive gymnast. Yep. So growing up, I was competing in gymnastics and me wearing a leotard was actually comfortable, which is funny to say because I, in school, never ever wanted to be in a skirt or shorts or anything like that. I had to wear long pants. I used to wear um, sports bras to somewhat push down, you know, any growth that I had in my chest. And I just did not want to look feminine because I just got paid out all the time to have, yeah. like, you know, as, as I started developing, I had had the boys um, start paying me out for, you know, seeing the lady lumps and the growth that, you know, females have. But when I was in the gymnasium, I felt so home. Like, I felt like it was my place to be. And I absolutely loved it. It was like therapy for me. And as a young girl who was going through challenges, I found that that was the place that I knew I could be myself. Yeah. I was actually so good at gymnastics. And then... <laughs> Typical Jenna style, I was on a boy's apparatus doing a giant around the giant bar. Doing a is, giant? So it's a, that? a full 360 around the bar on a high bar, which is a, generally it's a men's apparatus. And I didn't have my, you know how the gymnasts wear the hand straps? Yep. So I didn't have my straps on because we were just warming up, mucking around and whatnot, and I didn't have my straps on and it was just outside of my training and I happened to slip. And at that time we were training on really, really big fat mats and half of my body landed off the mat, the other half landed on top of the mat. Oh, my God. Um, and then the, my legs sort of flipped behind me and touched the back of my head. So it's like my, my body did this full circle, but in the re- reverse. Um, and I nearly broke my back. So I had to go to hospital and all that sort of stuff. And so from that point, my mum pulled me out and I was absolutely devastated. Well, I was just about to say, like, did you understand how bad it was at that point in time? No, I wanted to keep going. Yeah. My mum didn't like my coach because she thought that he was way too hard on me. And she needed an excuse to pull me out of it because he was so hard on me, but I thrived on him telling me I could be better. We often talk to these people who started Mm. their athletic careers really young and like all the things that it gave their lives afterwards in terms of what they learned. Do you think that's where your mindset comes from and the discipline and the control and the structure that you have now? Definitely 100%. I got my competitive edge from gymnastics. And so when I left gymnastics, when my mum forced me to leave, um, I didn't know what to do. I kind of felt like, again, I didn't have any purpose. I felt like I was having a hard time at school. I was liked by a lot of people, but I still didn't feel like I fit in. Majority of my friends were all boys. You know, I rarely had any girlfriends. I can relate to that. Yeah. And then I started racing BMX because it was funny. One of my neighbours, he he gave me my first BMX bike. And, And that's how I started doing BMX racing. And again, it was something I thrived at. It was something I was really, really good at. I absolutely love adventure sports. And that just sort of led into more adventure sports like mountain biking, snowboarding, wakeboarding and those sorts of things. So, yeah, similar to you in terms of being bullied at school, not feeling comfortable in the female body. Yeah, um, yeah, it definitely is where I got my competitive edge from very early on in my childhood, which I'm so glad for. And I'm so glad for the hard times that I received in school because it made me who I am today. So always remembering that every uncomfortable situation is going to produce growth. 
it's funny, you talk about going down a path of, you know, getting the competitive edge. All of the sports that you named are all solo endeavours. They are. Whereas all of the sports that I played were all team sports. Yeah. I think my dad secretly wanted a boy because he made me play every sport that he played. Yeah. So he made me play cricket and I was terrible at it. (laughs) Like to the point where he, you know, he put me into soccer. Soccer I happened to be decent at, but not because I was skillful. Mm. None of the sports that I have played, honestly, until later on in life, have I had to have any skill because I've muscled my way through it. Like yeah. soccer, I was really good at it because I could run. Yeah. I would just run up and down the field. Then when I went to college, I ended up playing American football. Mm. And that came after I was at the gym doing weights and there was a coach of an American football team at the gym. And he was like, you look like you should play American football. You look like you'd be really strong. Yeah, and at how that about stage, coming down? At that stage in life, you're kind of vulnerable to people giving you those compliments and sort of directing you in in a certain way or onto a certain path. And for me, that's what it took for me to get into the weights room was for somebody to say, you know, you'd be really good at lifting weights. So why don't you try some resistance training? And it, that's all it took for me to get out of the zone of being a very uneducated cardio queen and into the weights room and then being able to fuse the two together into what I now call my hybrid style training. Yeah. Interesting. Like I know I didn't do, like I was already doing weights by that stage. Mm. I'd already built myself up. I was already pretty jacked. Um, so I was just boxing and doing weights in the gym. And this guy was like, you'd be really good at American football. How about you come along? Do you want to try and play quarterback? And I'd seen movies where the quarterback was the absolute hero. And I was yeah. like, yeah, I'm going to be that dude on the field. And I'm going to throw these awesome passes and I'm going to be the hero. Terrible. I was a terrible, <laughs> terrible quarterback, but I was amazing at smacking into people. Yep. And so I think in the whole season, I played for four years. So I played offense and defense. So I played a wide receiver and a running back. And then I played a linebacker. And linebacker was by far my favorite position because all I had to do was come off the line and smash into people and stop them from scoring. And it happened to be that one of the girls that was on my team was the captain of the New Zealand women's rugby league team. And she taught me how to tackle. Oh, And so I was just smashing into people left, right and center, and I absolutely loved it. And from there, I ended up getting into wrestling. Yeah. So two sports that were like very, they weren't commonplace at all, especially for girls. Yeah. That required a lot of strength as well and technique and skill. Well, it's funny because for me, like I said, like I've never been very technical or very skillful, but I've always been really strong and really strong-willed. So again, for wrestling, I wasn't a technical wrestler. All I knew was that I was just going to do a takedown as quick as I could and then lie on top of them because I was really heavy and really strong and they couldn't move. And I was like, I'm just going to squish them and that's how I'm going to win this. Yeah, right. So the aggression that I had or the anger I had at my situation at home and with the rest of my life, it really played out. Like that was my outlet right from the get-go being involved in these sports that I guess were a little bit more violent than the norm, Mm. that was my outlet. Yeah. And do you think that because of the situation at home, which I'd like to dive into, Mm. is that the reason why you chose sports like that was because you wanted to have that outlet and because you wanted to have that sort of, I mean, it sounds like you almost use it as therapy or a a coaching mechanism. Absolutely. Like while I was being bullied at school, for the way I looked. Like at home, I was also facing challenges. So my mum, when I was 15, was diagnosed with manic depression or bipolar as it's now known. And back in those days, suicide wasn't spoken about. Mental health wasn't spoken about. And when she got diagnosed, like my mum literally went from one person to someone completely different almost overnight. Like 
I didn't know what to do. I didn't know who to talk to. I didn't know what was happening. And when I was 17, I walked in on my mum's suicide attempt. And it was the first time I ever realised how serious a situation it was. It's so confronting for you at, at the age of 17. I think at, the, oh. at any age, when you're already having a tough time and you walk in on your mother's attempted suicide and, I mean, how did you handle that? How, what was your response to that? Well, I mean, the short answer is I didn't handle it very well yeah. um, at all because I had no understanding of what was actually happening. Like I look at the way my dad coped, like my my dad was an alcoholic. That's how he coped with mum. He turned to alcohol. That was his outlet. And I remember the first time again, I realised how serious it was when I had this conversation because he would literally, I would get home from uni and he'd be drunk already and he'd be like, can you go to the alcohol store for me? And I'd be like, no way, I'm not enabling you. Like, yeah. you're drunk already. It's a work day. Why aren't you at work? Yeah. And he'd be like, well, if you don't go to the alcohol store for me, I'm going to drive myself drunk. I remember having this screaming fit at him and I was just like, oh my God, you realise that you're killing yourself. You yeah. realise that you're drinking yourself to death. Mm. And he was like, Alexa, I wish I could tell you that I loved you enough to stop, but I can't. And I was like, so he was holy truly addicted. shit. He was truly, was truly addicted. addicted. And that for me, like that was, I think up until that point, like I'd led this duality of life. Like in the weekdays, I would go to school or go to college. I would play my sport. I was, you know, I was really good. I was successful. I was someone to model life after. And in the weekend, well, man, I was out getting drunk because that's how I fit in. So I had yeah. these two coping mechanisms that competed with one another. But seeing my dad drink himself to death when I went to his funeral, that was the catalyst for me stopping. I literally, I drank his last bottle of whiskey. I danced on the bar. I fell off the bar. I threw up all over myself. I fell in a ditch. I missed my flight home. And I woke up in the morning next to my partner at the time and I turned over and I was like, I'm never drinking again. And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like until next weekend. And we've all had those moments. Like I know so many people yeah. have had those moments, but I literally never touched a drop of alcohol. And it was the best thing, albeit the hardest thing, but yes. the best decision I've ever made. And how long has it been now? It's been 14 years. Congratulations. <laughs> First of all, that's huge, <laughs> huge. And, you know, even better that you don't have to deal with hangovers. <laughs> I know. Even better. Do not miss them one bit. No. But so, I mean, like those are the things that I used to control what I was going through, but yeah. you had a very different control mechanism, didn't mm. you? Yeah. Look, my mum was quite similar in the respect that she went through multiple breakdowns. She had major depression and for some reason, I just thought it was all my fault. Right. So I've carried this this guilt throughout my childhood on my shoulders for so, so long when, you know, it's a, it took some work over the last few years to realise that it had nothing to do with me. Mm. But my, I guess, a lot of her traits sort of passed over to me and she was very conscious of her body image. Mm. She used to, and I think this is definitely where I got my hunger for training from, was... She would always lock herself for a minimum of two hours in the lounge room, crank Oz aerobics, and she <laughs> would just sweat it out in the lounge room. And I used to sit outside that door waiting for mum to come out because I was having such FOMO that she was in there <laughs> training. And, like, to me at that stage, I didn't see it as training. I just saw it as, oh, mum has to do this thing every single day and for hours on end. And, you know, that was her coping mechanism for going through what she was going through. Mm. And so she was very self-conscious. She had a lot of body image issues around her training and what she ate. 
um, she used to make comments like, I'm fat. She was far from fat. She was beautiful. She was a beautiful mother, um, but she just saw something completely different. And, you know, it's really crazy because I look back on how I used to think of myself and it was exactly the same as my mum. I used to think, you know, I was overweight when I was not. I was malnourished. (laughs) Um, You know, like so many traits from my mum were passed on to me and I took in a lot of what she said in and around the home and I ended up developing an eating disorder, specifically bulimia. And I had that for, I have to say, around 10 years because it's still quite a grey area for me. And I use that as a sense of control Mm. because I didn't have control in the home environment. I felt like I was not helping at all. I felt like I was the catalyst of all the problems that were going on in the home. And then in school, I wanted to do what I could to fit in. So I wanted to be like the other girls. I couldn't be like the other girls because I was built differently. And I was hiding my eating disorder from my family for years. Mm. It took a good couple of years for my sister to to notice um, and to clue on to what I was doing. She confronted me about it. She said, I know what you're doing. I don't understand. You've got to go to a doctor. Mm. And so she made me go to a doctor and she came with me and I went to that doctor and I saw that doctor once and I never went back. Yeah, right. And I think it was because at the stage I, I mean, I know these things about myself now that I know I don't like to be told what to do. <laughs> that's one major, that's really? one major thing. I don't like to be told what to do. Take note, people. Um, and it's just like telling people to quit smoking when they're not ready to quit smoking. You have to want it enough for yourself. Mm. But I can't honestly tell you when I stopped. It just diluted. I had to keep making these agreements to myself on a daily basis. It was almost like an hourly basis. It was almost like every hour or every meal that I ate, you can keep this one down. You can keep this one down. And so the next agreement would be next time you eat, keep it down. Don't visit the bathroom. You've got this. And take it meal by meal. It was to the point where I was eating, use this as an example, three meals a day and I would only purge twice, but yeah. I would keep one down. And so that was that was an agreement with myself. And then it got to a point where I would compensate with my training. <laughs> so. Okay. My training was something that I was absolutely addicted to at that stage through my eating disorder because I did use it to compensate um, and to make me feel better. So there was so much destructive behaviour going on in and around that disorderly eating that fed one another. So I was in this constant battle of toing and froing from, you know, the unhealthy training from the unhealthy eating and disorderly eating patterns that I had. But those agreements became longer apart, which were, you know, that's when I started healing and started um, knowing that food was fuel to me. And I saw the processes that I went through and how they changed my training, how they changed my strength. And by keeping my food down, I became fitter. I became faster. I became so much more powerful. Mm. I just remember training at the AAS on the sprint track and remembering this is like a good few weeks into having no purging incidents at all. And I was at the sprint track and I remember running on that track and thinking I could run forever. (laughs) And that was the point where I feel like I had this aha moment of, okay, Jenna, you've got this, we've got this under control. That's so great. So it's almost, it's 
it reminds me because it's like you almost used your love or your addiction to training mm. to help you recover from yes. the eating. I was very much the same in terms of my sobriety. Yeah. So when I first quit, I was so angry mm. and I was so frustrated because my, one of my outlets had been taken away. And I remember saying to a girlfriend of mine who'd actually been through drug and alcohol rehab for four, and she'd been, she was four years sober. And I remember saying to her, how the hell do you manage this? Like, how do you get these emotions under control? Because I'm so angry and I'm so frustrated and I've got nowhere to put them. She's like, you need to find a hobby. Mm. And I got into half Ironman training. I joined a triathlon club. Yes. And it was like, I'd never been taught to swim. Like I lived in the UK. I'd watched Jaws when I was four. I was terrified of shark. I was like, I'm never getting in the freaking water. And I ended up hiring a swim coach. So I'd never taught to swim. I turned up to my first swimming lesson and I'd given the coach a background. He was like, oh my God, like you said you were bad. I didn't realize you were this bad. And I was like, okay, tell me how you really feel. Yeah. Like terrible. I fought the water. Like I hated it. But I spent two and a half years, you know, doing half Ironman training until I took myself from a point of like never having swum before to all of a sudden I qualified for the world champs. Yeah. You know, it gave me a focus. It gave me a purpose, something bigger than myself. It gave me something to do in the weekend so that I wasn't sitting at home alone on a Saturday night with FOMO while everyone was out partying because I knew I had these four to six hour training sessions in the weekends. But more importantly, it gave me this entirely new community. Yeah of people who understood what it was that I was trying to do. Yeah. They'd all had very similar journeys. Fitness had played such a huge role in their life. So again, once again, for me, fitness was this thing that had saved me. Yeah. And I was like, this is what life is about. Like, oh my God, my other aha moment is I found my other safe place and now I don't need to do this. Yeah. I just want to. 100%. And that's cool. 100%. And I I can relate to that in the sense that the gym – or workout community mm. brings such incredible gifts. Oh, it's like I couldn't have done it. Like the support network that you have. Yes. And I think that's why a lot of people go to the gym. Every time we've got oh. someone that comes into classes, it's always because they thrive on being part of a community that understands what they're trying to do. Oh, and they've definitely. often got very similar backstories. So it's that whole we're not alone and there's somebody else to motivate and inspire and yeah. educate at the same time. Yeah. And I think that really drives a lot of the mental health stuff yes. that I do now. I wanted that role model, but I didn't have it. So I want to be that role model that for somebody else. That's going to be my next question. Is, is the work that you do now a catalyst to, you oh, know? Absolutely. What and that's, you went through. Like I said, it's one of the reasons that we're doing the podcast. Like I want to give people the advice that I wish I'd gotten as a kid, because at least yeah. if I knew that somebody else was out there going through something similar, or if I wasn't alone, it would make the journey yeah. easier to navigate. So, Jen, we didn't meet till very, like, very later on in mm. our fitness yeah. journeys. You were in the corporate sector for a <sighs> long time. <laughs> 13 years. 13 years. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you decided that you were no longer going to be in the corporate sector. No. So what did you do then? So that's a, there's a couple of stories to that because <laughs> that was something that I started so early on in my adulthood. I was 18 when I first started in the public service and the first four years I really enjoyed. I thought it was great because I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what I wanted to, to do with my life. I knew I loved training. I loved working out, but I didn't know how to make that a career. Yeah, I just used fitness as my hobby 
as an outlet, as something that I did after, before and after work. So halfway through my career, I met my then husband. Yeah. He thought this training was a phase and that I would get over it and that it wasn't a smart career choice. And I had to be this person who was going to be a successful person in the corporate sector who climbed their way up their ladder and made a lot of money and had multiple homes and those sorts of things, which wasn't what I had in mind for myself, (laughs) that's for sure. Um, And I think there was was such a long period of time where I was trying to accept that that's what my life was going to be. And I then had this realisation that I actually don't have to have my life dictated (laughs) by somebody else. Mm. Um, And this is such a long story cut short, but within a week, everything sort of collapsed in on itself. And it was by choice, mind you. It was a very hard choice to make, but I decided to leave Canberra, leave my relationship, leave my dog, leave my family. I literally walked away with my Suzuki Swift, which actually wasn't even mine. It wasn't mine. Um, With a Suzuki Swift that was borrowed and my pillow and a couple of bags worth of clothing. And if you know me, I have way more than a couple of bags of activewear and headed to Sydney. And I stayed with a friend and that was on a Thursday. And then that weekend, I put myself into a 48-hour warrior immersion course, which for those who don't know, is like a military style, very immersive, life-changing experience. So... It came at a really tough time, but the perfect time in my life where I fully immersed myself in this 48 hours of training, physical and mental debilitating <laughs> style um, <laughs> environment where I, you know, I was broken down, I was sleep deprived, food deprived, all for a good purpose, of course. And it really showed me how strong I was mentally, but it also helped me reprioritize my life and what was important to me. So, Jen, you are, just like your training, a little bit of a hybrid. (laughs) How would you describe what it is that you do for a profession? Yeah, I really have. (laughs) Anyone who knows me knows I have a lot of trouble doing this. Um, You wear a lot of hats. I do. Mm. I actually do. Um, It's because of my brand partnerships, my ambassadorships and those sorts of things I feel provides such a huge, I guess, variety in what I do. The, it also makes up, you know, 50% of my career. The other 50%, I train people online. So I have an app, Jail Elite, which is training in nutrition and personalised programs. And then I coach and mentor women as well. I had no idea we had so many parallels because yeah. when I first started in PTing full-time, like being sort of a strength coach, I was still in the corporate sector. So I initially went to Hong Kong on a PR contract. Yeah. And then I met my then partner who was a Kiwi boy who was an ex-fighter, ex-footy player, of course. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) And he was like, why don't you come and work with me at the gym, like get back into fitness. So I was still working my corporate job. I couldn't just leave because I had no money. Like I had not a single cent to my name. Yeah, right. I was stressing out. I was living in this cockroach-infested little apartment in Hong Kong. Sometimes I didn't even know how I was going to actually pay my bills. Yeah. So it was incredible. But I I would get up at 4 a.m. in the morning. I would work at the gym from 5 till 8. 
like whatever clients he could give me. Mm. I did them for free for first because I needed to prove myself. Yep. And then I would go to my corporate job from nine to five and I would go back to the gym from six to nine. And in my lunch break, I would sit there and I would Google the hardest exercises ever so I could put these corporate guys through these epic sessions so that they would go back to work feeling like they'd had an absolute boss workout because the gym that I worked at at that time was an MMA gym and I was the only female trainer and I did not want to be the easy trainer. So I was like, I'm going to annihilate these guys. And like in those days, my idea of a good workout was killing people people. say that they were on the ground spewing. That was what I thought a good workout was. Um, And it wasn't until much later, like when I got more educated and I went to, you know, the Australian Institute of Fitness, I went through my National Academy of Sports Medicine. Mm. When I got all my full-on qualifications that you start to realise. Yes how important structured training is. And honestly, like, it changed my entire approach. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I was travelling between Hong Kong and Utah to do these massive training camps with this place called Jim Jones, had these massive standards. These are the guys that trained, like, the cast and crew for 300, the immortal Superman. They were, like, top-level coaches. I had to apply to get in. There were standards. You had to have, like, a sub-seven-minute 2K row. You had to be able to double bodyweight deadlift. You had to be able to one-and-a-half squat. All of those things, and I loved it because it was this exclusive community and Mm. I was part of this elite team of individuals. And I remember going there and I met Chris Feather, who owns 98 Gym, and he was Russell Crowe's PT slash bodyguard at the time. And he was like, man, if you ever want to come to Sydney, we would love to have you at the gym. And I remember going back to Hong Kong and basically being like, so I'm leaving in three months. And I literally packed up all of my staff and booked a flight to Sydney, not knowing what I was going to do, didn't know anybody. But I was like, this is what my new life is going to be. This is where it is. And I'm out of here. That's when I started working at 98 Gym. And I have been there ever since. It's so crazy what that pressure can do when you are given this time frame. Yeah. And I think we probably both met each other time. Like I think when I met you, I just moved to Sydney yeah. and you had just left your house yeah. or you were no, in, the in the process of leaving. Of, yeah. Because you came to- The fitness expo. The f- yes. And I was interviewing, I was doing the interviewing for Women's Health and Fitness magazine. And I remember walking around and thinking I'd seen you around on social media a little bit. I'd seen you'd won the F45 playoffs. And I was like, there's that chick. I'm going to go interview her. And then they'll like, go and ask her for an arm wrestle. And I came around the corner. I was like, yeah, cool, cool, cool. And you were doing something. You were flexing your phone. And I was like, I'm not asking her for an arm wrestle. But I ended up interviewing you. And then we did the Facebook Live. Yeah, That was the worst workout ever. That was the best workout ever. (laughs) That was it so went, hard. And I was like, oh my God. So long. Um, <laughs> I gave, I took Alexa through this oh, like body weight style workout, but it's, you know, very plyometric. And so Alexa ended up doing the regress version. And then yep. you took me through a glute workout, which absolutely, my buns were on fire. <laughs> so we meshed our, our two loves together and we came up with this incredible workout for the people. And the people loved it. Like people it was. absolutely loved it. So. And we've had we've been having these conversations yeah. ever since. But yeah. like, so you've moved on from there. So mm. you've obviously built this incredible social media platform. And then you went on to do Ninja Warrior. Yes. Yeah. 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 So Ninja. Well, I feel like um, Ninja came about 
I reckon I manifested this. I just have these magical powers, hey. Do you know they've <laughs> asked me to do it twice and every time I've been like, hell no, I could not think of anything worse, <laughs> like anything worse. Why though? Because <gasps> it's the worst thing ever. I don't want to, do you know how heavy I am? <laughs> Hanging up, no thank you. Are you kidding? You, <laughs> all, you, you always have to think light as a feather, light as a feather. Yeah, no, I'm definitely not light as a feather. <laughs> but you did it and you yeah. were, tell me about season one. Yeah, I first of all loved Ninja Warrior. Way before it even come to Australia, I was just super excited about the opportunity for it to come to Australia. And then when it did, I'm like, this is so me. I'm so on it. And I ended up getting through. So season one was great. I had such a blast. I know, because I was on the sideline running up and down. Alexa was my cheer squad and (laughs) what a cheer squad she was. The little gun walking down the side. Everyone kept sending me the photo because I was so excited. (laughs) Like I was the one that was in the crowd like, yes. And so there was this photo and everyone just screenshot it and I was literally like the person in the crowd that they they put up for the advertising. I was just like, there's always one. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for the support. It was amazing. did you get injured? Yeah, second, so season season two, I was injured. I actually had a just it was three weeks before going on to season two of Ninja Warrior. I tore my gluten hamstring, and it was that bad where I couldn't stand on one foot. I managed Yikes. to get through the testing of Ninja Warrior season two without being noticed in terms of having an injury, and then I. I conked out on the first obstacle in season two because I couldn't even stand on one leg. How so devastating. The, it was devastating. Yeah. But at the same time, I had done season one. I went really well on season one. I had an absolute blast. And just for anyone out there thinking they can do Ninja Warrior, honestly, <laughs> when you're sitting on the couch and you're watching from home, oh my God. the obstacles don't look very big. But when you're standing <laughs> underneath them and you're about to throw your entire body just at the hopes that you're going to make it to the other side, it is very daunting and I'm not afraid of much. (laughs) So it is very daunting and they're much bigger in real life than they are on TV. Yeah. And what, like, in terms of injury and stuff, because obviously that was a significant injury, like tearing your gluten hamstring is no mean feat. Yeah, I was going to say, like, what did that do to you as an athlete, being that part of your, like a huge part of your identity was being strong and fearless and being able to do whatever you wanted? At that stage, it really sucked. I actually didn't take it very well. Mm. One thing I did do well was adjust my training. Yeah. So that's something that I help people with now, just because you're injured or just because you don't have the use of, you know, your knee or something like that, you still have other limbs and you still have other modalities to train and there's other types of methods that you can immerse yourself into and those types of things. Yeah. So for me, it's swimming. I really suck at swimming. So I put myself into the pool and I started swimming and trying to rehabilitate and rebuild my strength. So my focus then s- switched from, you know, ballistic style training to really slow and focused, deep rebuild. And it took a good two years to rebuild that hamstring. And now, oh my gosh, my hamstrings are so strong. Touch wood. Yeah. <laughs> isn't that amazing? so strong. Yeah. Um, but then my second injury, which I, at the start of this year, I had um, knee surgery. I took that so much better. Because you already had an understanding of the rehab process. I think like for me as a coach, I definitely think that being injured is one of the most useful tools you can have because you develop this empathy for what it's like to be in pain. But you also, because you're forced to rehab it yourself, you then understand the process for somebody else coming through it. You get more educated. You force yourself into educating yourself around 
you know, how to produce regrowth in that injured area and those types of things and what are the types of training that you should be doing or could be doing that's going to benefit not only that injury area but your mind state as well. Oh, absolutely. So the like, biggest thing yeah. was the mind state for me. I was like, what can I do that's going to feel like I used to train? Oh. You, you had a major, <laughs> yeah. major surgery. Quite unexpected. Um, when I was 37, so a couple of years ago now, I did a squat session. And I experienced quite a bit of pain afterwards for the next four days. Got to the point where my lower back was really sore, my hip flex really sore. I'd been to a soft tissue specialist. He'd been like trying to get, you know, get the kinks out. And I had just stopped responding to all treatment. And he he basically said to me, he was like, you probably need to go and get checked out because I think you've torn the labrum in your hip. And I was like, okay, oh God, I don't even know what that means, but I'll go and get it checked out. And when I went to the doctor to get a referral to get an MRI, the doctor was like, you know what, you should just get an x-ray while you're there because you're far too young to have anything wrong with your bones, but go and get the x-ray just because. And I went in, got the x-ray and they basically rang me like, yeah, not only have you torn the labrum top and bottom, but you've actually got degenerative osteoarthritis in your left hip. It basically meant that because I'd torn the labrum top and bottom, I was bone on bone. Ow. That's and where the pain was coming from. Oh, my God. Yeah. I have never experienced that much pain in my life. And for eight months, I had to live with it. I couldn't walk. I couldn't train. I couldn't sleep because there was referred pain all the way down my leg. I was completely isolated because I couldn't even go to the mall with my friends. Like mm. I would walk into Westfield and my car would be like, not even, you know, 500 metres away, and I'd be in pieces four steps later because I couldn't put weight on that leg. I went into the gym trying to do my job as a coach, and I would sit in the corner. The boys all had to do the weights for me. My clients had to learn to be really self-sufficient because I could literally, all I could do was sit in the corner with my crutches and yell at them from across the room because for the last three months, I couldn't walk. Mm. And honestly, like, it was the first time in my life that I was like, holy shit, who am I? if I am not strong? Yeah. Who am I if I can't train? Who am I if I'm not an athlete and I'm not a coach? Who am I if I'm not this vibrant, enthusiastic, positive person walking to the gym? Because you know what? Life sucks right now. Mm. And it was that you really need to sort yourself out moment. Yeah. It was like, life can't go on like this. Yeah. See what this has done to me. Yeah. And I was like, okay, what else can I do here? And I remember one of the guys coming to me, one of the other trainers, and he was like, I had no idea that it was that bad for you because I never knew how to ask for help. Yeah. I was the last person in the world that would ever say, I'm in a really bad place. I'm feeling really depressed about my life right now. I need help. I didn't want to be that person. Mm. And um, he just said to me, he was like, what can we do to help? And I was like, don't treat me like an invalid. Give me something to do that makes me feel strong. Yeah. And again, training, I was like, I would go into the gym and we found a bunch of stuff that I could do. Like I could hip hinge, I could glute bridge, I could do like trap bar deadlift, lift it up. Yeah, right. Stuff like partial range of motion. And sometimes, yeah, it would cause me more pain, like more physical pain. But the physical pain was so outweighed by the psychological benefits I had of feeling like I had my shit together again. Yes. That I was like, right, I'm just going to train. And my surgeon said that it pretty much saved me in terms of like how I recovered. Well, we know what what movement does for us mentally. Oh, it's, yeah, the psychological benefits <laughs> yes. of strength training especially and how powerful they can be for your mindset. Like I think that was the first time I'd really put it yeah. into practice. Yeah. So I ended up going to see five orthopedic surgeons, all of who told me that I would need a total hip replacement or I would never walk again. Yeah. And then obviously I 
had surgery. Well, I mean, I should know by now that shit yeah. never goes to plan, but <laughs> on August, I think it was August the 12th, 2017, I went in for surgery at St. Vincent's at like 8am in the morning and I woke up at 12pm in ICU on a breathing tube, unable to breathe by myself with three of like my best friends standing over my hospital bed, bawling their eyes out. And they were like, oh my God, like we thought you died. And but, then, but and I had. had, so I, it turns out I had an anaphylactic reaction to my antibiotics and I'd flatlined on the table and had to be resuscitated four times. So, you know, you if you're going to do not, something, do it really well. It, it sounds like you were definitely not meant to leave this world. <laughs> no, I don't, look, I don't think so. And I didn't see anything. Like I had 137 messages on Instagram being like, did you get abducted by aliens? Was there a white light? Like, did you see Jesus? Did you have a conversation yeah, with God? Yeah, nothing. Nothing at all. What? Like, I, I know. What? I was so disappointed. <laughs> I finally <laughs> know somebody who, who has died. died. <laughs> And I get nothing from oh, this. Oh, no. <laughs> I was like, man, you could have at least given me a cool story. But no, right. I literally, but I tell you what, I woke up with this absolute clarity around the type of person I wanted to be and the type of energy I wanted to bring to people around me. And the last thing I had done was deliver a mental health presentation in a school in Townsville. Mm. And the school that I went to had this military affiliation. One of the students that I spoke to had lost in the space of a year her brother, her dad, and her best friend oh. to suicide. And as I'm delivering this talk and I'm sharing my life story, I'm watching this kid in the front row and she's head in her hands, bawling her eyes out. And she waits until the whole talk is over. And she basically comes up to me at the end and she's like, I just wanted to say thank you. And I was like, why? Like, you know, my pleasure. You know, I yeah. don't know what I did, but she's like, no, you don't understand. Like today was the day I was going to kill myself. Oh. And listening to you share your story has made me realize that I'm not alone and I'm going to ask for help. And I just sat there just going, I had no idea that sharing my own story, I know I'm going to cry now too, okay, sharing, my, <laughs> sharing my own story could have such a profound impact on somebody else's life. And I remember just waking up and thinking that was the first conversation that I remember when I woke up and I was like, this is what life is about. Mm. It's about having these conversations that could save people's lives. And that's what I want to do with my life. And what an incredible gift for you to have received. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I, that's what this series is all about. Absolutely. We want to give people listening the sense that they're not alone. They can absolutely achieve whatever they want to do as long as they're willing to work for it. Mm -hmm. And there are people out there who have incredible advice having been through trauma themselves and that we can give them tangible takeaways to apply to their own lives that are going to get them to where they want to get to. Alexa, it's been such an incredible gift to be able to help change people's lives for the better and to be able to use this podcast to elevate that even more is something that's really close to my heart. And I'm super excited to be able to speak with our guests, learn from our guests and educate our listeners. Absolutely. And it's such an honour to be able to share this podcast with you, Alexa. Thank you so much for being such an incredible co-host. And thank you so much for being my friend. Aww. And we hope everyone out there enjoys listening to these incredible conversations with our guests as much as we enjoyed having them. How Fitness Saved My Life is hosted by me, Action Alexa. And me, Jenna Louise. Producer, Tina Madelov. Audio production by Nikki Sitch. And executive producer, Jennifer Goggin.
listener.